0: One, a white boy in the Hammersmith Palais. I think it was my love of wrestling that first took me to the dance hall. There was barely a week of my childhood in which I did not have the following dialogue with a stranger. Any relation? Beg your pardon? You know, any relation to the wrestler? My mother might wearily manage an indulgent laugh as if to say, You know, I've never heard that before in my life. I just felt awkward, though I suspected I might indeed be a distant relation of Mick McManus, a professional wrestler who was a fixture on the Saturday afternoon televised bouts. The contests in the early 1960s had none of the pyrotechnics of the modern spectacle, just well-oiled showmen like Jackie Palo or Johnny Quango. Grappling and hurling sweaty lungs around and sometimes out of a small roped ring. Mick McManus spelled his name like my papa had before my dad added an A to make it MacManus because it looked posher and better in print. Anyone could see that I shared the same stocky physique with the man you love to hate and had similar plastered down black hair. Later, it was revealed that, like me, Mick could only be forced into submission by tickling. Late in his career, Mick suffered a rare defeat when his opponent used this dastardly tactic and the champ renounced the match in disgust. Back around 1961, I would practice my flying scissor kick in front of the television and then crumple as if felled by a forearm smash. Eventually, all my jumping off the furniture became too much for the neighbors and my mother wanted to tidy the house. So she persuaded my dad to take me with him to work on Saturday afternoons at the Harris Smith Palais. This was my father's place of employment his office, his factory. It was just an old tram shed that have not converted into a palais de danse, jammed in between the Lorry Arms pub and a parade of the shops just off the Hammersmith Broadway. While other dads came home at 5.30, my father went to work at 6 p.m. or in this case on Saturday afternoon to sing with the Joe Loss Orchestra The walls of the palais looked as if they were made of dark velvet, but it came off like powder if you ran your hand along it. It smelt and felt strange. It didn't seem like a place for children. Today, it's hard to imagine any establishment opening in the afternoon for so few patrons, but when the Joe Loss Orchestra revolved into view on the turntable bandstand, you would forget it was still light outside. I was given a bottle of lemonade and a packet of crisps and was secured in the balcony overlooking the dance floor with strict instructions to not speak to anyone. The clientele were as curious as they were sparse in number. When I pointed out the two old ladies were dancing together, they were identified as spinsters. There was a mother teaching her young daughter dance steps, sometimes lifting her onto her own feet to give the girl a sense of the right rhythm. Commanding the floor were the competition dancers who used the Saturday matinees for practice sessions. They jealously guarded their territory intolerant of more frivolous obstacles like children. From my vantage point, their haughty expressions and sudden frozen poses seemed quite comical, as they cocked their heads and made pecking movements with their necks like chickens. There could also be something quite intimidating about them, especially when they launched into a gallop during the quick stop foot soldiers fear cavalry charges for the same reason. There was nobody else up in the balcony except for the women who checked coats and another who sold refreshments at the kiosk. I think my dad had charged one of them with checking on me from time to time to make sure I hadn't wandered off. She needn't have worried. My eyes were fixed on the bandstand. At that time, the Joe Loss Orchestra was one of the most successful dance bands in the country. It consisted of three or sometimes four trumpets, four trombones, five saxophones, a rhythm section, and three vocalists. The band opened and closed every set and radio broadcast with its signature tune, In the Mood." which was borrowed from the Glenn Miller Orchestra. In fact, they still played a lot of Miller tunes from the war years, the beautiful and sentimental Moonlight Serenade, Pennsylvania 65,000, with the band members shouting out the telephone number in the title, and American Patrol, which is my favorite, probably because it sounded like the theme song from a cops and robbers show. What the outfit lacked in musical adventure, Joe Lost made up for by hiring rangers with a keen ear for fleeting dance trends. They had a hit with Must Be Madison and recorded novelty tunes with daft titles like March of the Mods, March of the Woomans, and Go Home, Bill Ludendorff, which my dad wrote with the band's pianist, Sid Lucas. I still had a child's uncritical ear for the corny bell effect created by the horns on wheels cha-cha and waited for the tango or the doble numbers because of the comical dance moves or the samba as my dad got to play the maracas or the conga drum. The competitive ballroom dancers Used not to care much for vocalists because they pulled the beat around when phrasing so my dad might only get to sing once or twice during the afternoon. I became impatient for those moments, kicking my leg against the balcony wall and picking idly at a swivel lid mounted on the tabletop until I pulled out my finger, all gray and powdered with ash. Finally, my father was called to the microphone to sing a Spanish number. It was a language that he could actually speak. He once made the Spanish wife of a friend of mine blush when she inquired where he had learned the Spanish tongue. In bed, he replied, I believe that was true. His talent for learning songs fanatically meant that he was able to fool most people when called upon to sing in Italian, French, even Yiddish. Argentine international hit Quando Calienta al Sol and Peppino DiCaprio's tremulous Italian pop hit Roberta sung in Spanish were two rumbas that I heard him sing during those afternoons. They were eventually recorded for the wonderfully titled Go Latin with Loss album, on which Ross also sang Richie Fallon's La Bamba. My father didn't have the appearance of the typical romantic leading man. He was only five foot five and wore black horn-rimmed glasses, much like the ones I've sported most of my career. His hair was slicked tight at the sides and swept up into a discreet jet black pompadour until the fashion for brushing your hair forward caught up with him around 1965. And he started to buy Chelsea boots with Cuban heels from toppers and Carnegie Street. say it wrong. Carnegie Street. In 1961, my dad was 33. The boys in the band, as he always referred to them, seemed like older men to me, but were probably only in their late 30s and 40s. They wore matching band uniforms shawl-collar jackets of burgundy or baby blue, and dress pants with a satin side stripe. My father wore a dark, lounge suit for the matinees, and evening dress when the occasion demanded it. The idea that you wore a suit to go to work became so instilled in me that to this day, the temperature must soar well above 100 degrees Fahrenheit before I will remove my jacket.